Welcome back, friends. Hit Factory here. I'm Aaron. I'm Carly. And today we have a very special guest. Returning champion, Jesse Hawken is on the show. Jesse, welcome back. Great to have you. Thanks, everybody. Nice to see you again. Very nice to see you, Jay. Jesse, we're thrilled to have you back on the show uh, for, I think, your third round on Hit Factory now. Mm-hmm. Last time you came on the show, uh, you brought us a slightly overstuffed middle-brow legal thriller uh, with some fantastic performers at the center of it. And I'm glad to see that we've mixed it up a little bit this time and are talking today about the 1996 film Primal Fear. <laughs> Primal Fear, or as we like to say, Primal Gear. Because yeah, yeah. this is one of Gear's <laughs> prime performances as an actor. Tip-top gear. It really is. This is good gear. This is top solid gear. gear. Top, top gear. Top gear. <laughs> I used to watch that show. Top gear. <laughs> Does everyone remember Top Gear? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to come up now with a riff on Metal Gear Solid for this one. No, don't. Gear Solid in this. He's, he is solid in oh, this. Oh, he is. He's, so, mm-hmm. he's the anchor. He's very solid. He's an anchor performance. Yes, he is uh, sort of the linchpin of it all. We, although we have another fantastic performance at the center of this film in newcomer uh, Eddie Norton, Mr. Edward Norton himself. This is a performance that is so incredible that he joined the pantheon of about a dozen actors in the history of the Academy Awards to be nominated for their very first acting performance. Who else is on that list? Well, you've got like non-professionals like Harold Russell from The Mm -hmm. Best Years of Our Lives, Mm. who, by the way, is the only actor to win two Oscars for the same performance. Oh, my God. Well, they didn't think he was going to win Best Supporting Actor, so they gave him a special Oscar for his incredible performance in the movie, and then he won the official category, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's a boss move it would be like if the uh if the flash moment from uh zack snyder's justice league ended up getting nominated for best picture mm. and yeah. then also getting the honorary fan oscar award yes. yeah yeah very similar to that is uh, is tatum o'neill one of those two was that her first performance in mm-hmm. uh yep. yep child actors like um anna paquin and Tatum O'Neill got nominated. Uh, I I don't know if it was Paquin's very first performance, but it certainly was Tatum O'Neill. She was age nine at the time. Yep. But uh, Dr. Hang S. Noor from The Killing Fields was Oscar nominated for his first performance. And you also have people from other fields like Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. Mm. You've got Oprah Winfrey for The Color Purple. Right. Jennifer mm. Hudson for Dream Girls. And most recently, you had Gabri Sidibe for Precious and Barkhad Abdi for Captain Phillips. Uh, right, oh, but um, yeah, but they that was those weren't performances that turned them into movie stars like Edward Norton, like instant name in Hollywood from this performance. The interesting thing about it is that he uh, auditioned for the part uh, on a VHS tape along with thousands of other actors. I think there are two thousand actors uh, auditioned to play Aaron Stampler. Leonardo DiCaprio, in fact, turned the part down. <laughs> uh, Matt Damon tried very hard to land this part. <laughs> I read that Pedro Pascal said that his first ever audition in Hollywood was for this part. Oh, wow. wow. Um, James Marsden was in the in the running for it, but huh. they decided to cast an unknown actor to really drive the power of this character home. That if he didn't come with uh, baggage, you've never seen this kid before. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how quickly it happened for him. I, I feel like even just a handful of years later by like the late nineties, early two thousands, it was sort of uh common knowledge that like 
Edward Norton was in the conversation of some of like the greatest actors of like the current generation working. What, what you're saying about the tape makes so much sense now because when I was looking at when Primal Fear came out, I was like 96. I was like, no, he was like already like a major star by 1996. Like I was thinking back and nope. I was like, I remember him being like very everywhere in the 90s. But it makes sense that this was like the thing that like immediately made him sort of like saturated in into Hollywood because he did really all of a sudden like feel like he was everywhere. Like I he was a major, major star and a name that I knew when I was a child. Um, and it's pretty remarkable that this was his first role, given like how much he's done since then. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just and he's breathtaking. Mm-hmm. And he's sixth build in the cast. It's not even like he's the third build actor mm-hmm. in this movie. He's sixth build. Wild. Yeah. He steals a significant portion of the show from from the rest of these uh, more seasoned and uh, very capable actors. It's uh, It's something to behold. On my first day of law school, my professor says, from this day forward, when your mother says she loves you, get a second opinion. In the game called fame. You are a master at putting the victim on trial. A victim in this case is my client. In the business called justice. First thing I ask a new client is, so you've been saving up for a rainy day? Guess what? It's rainy. The victim in this case is not only the Archbishop, it's also the people of Chicago. Excuse me. Law, this is a Martin Vale. You got the news on by any chance? I think everyone's going to want this one. There's one lawyer they love to hate. Sell the book rights yet, or are you going to wait a while? Now tell me, Counselor, which one of us is the true headline chaser here? Unlike you, I was assigned to this case. You know who I am? No, sir, I don't. Don't you read the papers? Richard Gere. I speak you do not speak. Your job is just to sit there and look innocent. Well, I am innocent. That's it. That's exactly how I want you to look. Can you remember that? Look in the mirror if you have to. Even when the headline is murder. There was someone else in that room. It was the third person? <laughs> That's the worst <laughs> story I've ever heard in my entire life. Now it's our story. He's the one. You want to go one-on-one with me? I don't lose. What's the matter, Marty? Been a while since you rubbed up against a woman with a brain? Who's the real story? Come on, ask it. What about the truth? The illusion of truth. Well, he did kill him, right? No, he didn't. Don't tell me you think he didn't do it. So how are you going to get him off? <laughs> I don't know. Primal Fear. This is a cover story, right? Yeah. I'm curious, Jesse, to start out with uh, what your history with Primal Fear is, because this is one that uh, you suggested we discuss. I imagine you may have seen this one in the theater back in 1996. Uh, no, actually. I I found out about this movie the way I think a lot of people did, which was that it was on television a lot. Uh-huh. It was a cable <laughs> classic. Yes. And... Uh, I had heard the reputation about this movie, but the nineties were full of these adult legal thrillers. And uh, this was the time of John Grisham Mm -hmm. and uh, primal fear. I had heard good things about it. I had heard that there's a big twist. You're not going to want to miss and all that. I think that it probably didn't need to be seen in a theater, except for the communal shock of the twists in the movie, because it does feel like a TV movie. And I, I, I don't mean that in a, in a overly pejorative way. I just mean that it's an efficient, does its job kind of film. There's no flash to it. 
It was shot by Michael Chapman, the great cinematographer who shot Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really need to be seen in a theater. It, it seems like prestige television to me. And so on television, uh, we're all used to watching engrossing courtroom dramas and psychological courtroom dramas. So uh, I think that it found its audience as being a kind of, you know, we've both of our shows. I think we've discussed dad's movies <laughs> and this feels mm-hmm. like a dad's legal thriller. The one thing I will say, too, about watching it on TV as a kid is that, you know, I was very used to the, as you said, the courtroom dramas being sort of like the material that 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 was on television a lot. But what I found distinct and interesting about this one is seeing a person like Richard Gere in in the movie, whom I already was in love with at the time because I was obsessed with Pretty Woman. And so seeing him in this like in this setting was surprising for me, um, despite the fact that he is playing a very similar character to Edward um, in Pretty Woman in this film. I want to stay on the the subject of it being kind of like TV ready and uh, a, a good sort of almost like cable movie for a moment. I think a lot of that has to do with the, the players uh, on the screenplay and also the person behind the camera directing as well. So this is an adaptation we should say, first and foremost, of a 1993 novel of the same name by a writer named William Deal. The screenwriters on this are a gentleman named Steve Shagan, I say, I want to mm-hmm. say. Steve Shagan, maybe? Mm-hmm. Who it's knows? Steve Shagan, who wrote Shagan. Um, Save the Tiger, the, yes. the Jack Lemmon film. He also has a writing credit on The Sicilian, Michael Cimino's uh, yes. oh my gosh. movie about uh, Salvatore Giuliano with Christopher Lambert, Cross-Eyed. That's- so random. <laughs> and uh, Robert Aldrich's uh, Hustle with Burt Reynolds yes. and Catherine Deneuve, which was adapted from one of his own novels himself. So he had done that. He also, I noticed uh, in his credits, has a, a TV movie uh, about uh, Gotti from this year, 1996, that was released that he was nominated for an Emmy for that starred one of your favorites, Armand Asante. I remember that TV movie. <laughs> Filmed in Toronto. Vividly. Was Filmed it really? Filmed in Toronto, yeah. Beautiful. It's supposed to be like in New Jersey. (laughs) Toronto doubles as Toronto uh, plays New Jersey all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Good to Uh, know. The other screenwriter on this is Anne Biederman, uh, who has a handful of credits to her name. One of them is a co-writer of Michael Mann's Public Enemies. Uh, But she's also the creator of Ray Donovan, Mm -hmm. which is a long running uh, Showtime series with uh, Liev Schreiber. Wild. Yeah. And then, of course, the director himself, Gregory Hoblet. Uh, who has uh, an excellent run of late 90s, early 2000s kind of cable mid-budget thriller movies, um, but got his start doing uh, some some NYPD Blue. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's he really, I think, kind of the, the secret sauce here. He's the kind of guy who just made this type of movie that a lot of these kind of guys made in the 90s um, that we don't get anymore. These mid-budget, solid, sturdy, well-crafted, thrillers of this kind with a couple of A-listers or, or really, you know, gangbusters lead performances in it. He's also uh, the director of Fallen, the Denzel Washington film from 98. Which feels like mm-hmm. eerily similar to this, even though there's some paranormal stuff in that one. Yeah. And then uh, another one of his big ones uh, that I recall is Fracture with Anthony Hopkins and yeah. uh, Ryan Gosling in one of his kind of early starring roles. That's another um, legal thriller with uh, lots of uh, florid acting as the big twist, because uh, that movie had uh, a hilarious poster, which was just a giant close up of 
Anthony Hopkins face with the words, I shot my wife. <laughs> you know, it's like, that, you know, you want to watch a movie. Oh, and Ryan Gosling is a Southern lawyer in the film. So there's yes. some devil's advocate shit going on. Of course. Yep. But, uh, you know, that is another serviceable. I'd watch that if it was on TNT movie. A hundred percent. And he also did um, Frequency with mm-hmm. Dennis Quaid and the, you know, the resurgent star, Jim Caviezel, Jim Caviezel. Oh, yes. star of the number one movie for one day called uh, Sound, Sound of Freedom. Of Freedom. <laughs> I, I actually really love Frequency. I, I know you, well, and you, I know that you're a big Jim Caviezel fan too. I'm a big yeah. Jim Caviezel and I mean, not anymore. Well, but. yeah, but I, there's an argument to be made for a minute there that he was, you know, one of the most beautiful men on screen around like the thin red line. Oh uh, my God. You know, like he's, he's gorgeous. Yeah, he's a, he's a very uh, magnetic in that film. Incredible fumbling of the bag, too. Uh, <laughs> when you wind up uh, being the star of Terrence Malick's first movie in 20 years, it, as a de facto lead, too, because you know he just survived the editing process. Yeah. I think Adrian Brody thought he was the star of the movie, and then he found out at the screening that he wasn't in it very much. And right. Caviezel wound up uh, all of his stuff, basically made the final cut. Uh, and then he played Christ for Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. And then he yep. was on Person of Interest for a long time, a show yes. that uh, people liked. But he's just a Looney Tunes. And, he, he's and now he's, uh, <laughs> you know, he helping to promote uh, Sound of Freedom by uh, ranting QAnon style on talk shows. It's wild. It's really disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> How his star has fallen. Yeah. Well, there's good Twitter fodder coming from him. It certainly mm-hmm. is. Um, but he's not in this movie. Yeah, we digress. <laughs> uh, but let's talk a little bit. I guess a, a good place to start is with those central performances here because uh, Gear really does. I mean, he, he is the necessary kind of like sturdy vehicle at the center of all of this. He's He's doing very good work. And I think that this role particularly plays to his strengths he's not a he's not an actor i think of who has like a a significant kind of range or goes you know too big often um and i think that that kind of measuredness works really well for this sort of uh criminal defense attorney character that he's playing Mm -hmm. and he's sort of a 90s archetype too the sort of the the ace attorney hotshot yep uh love knows how handsome he is kind of lawyer type uh you know and a lot of gear's best performances are the ones where his natural good looks uh are part of the point that the movie's trying to make that you know guys like this generally get to do what they like because they're so handsome uh and gear for me uh i I recognize that he was a, a himbo of the first order when i was a teenager but i started liking him a lot more as an actor when he started going to seed when the sort of the good looks started to give away to middle age Yep. And the sort of the guy who gets the girl kind of personality that he had started to rot. Uh, you know, Pretty Woman was like a huge, huge hit. And, you know, he was uh, so much of the reason why that movie was a success was because of his uh, magnetism and chemistry with Julia Roberts. But I prefer another movie from that year by him called Internal Affairs, the Mike yes. Figgis film, where he plays <laughs> a I'm definitely doing an episode on my podcast about that movie at some point. I love it. And uh, Gear is so scary and gross in that movie and so handsome. And, you know, I just like the the the, the picture of the high school quarterback who's now turning 40 and yes. the grossness of a kind of guy like that. When the looks are starting to go, uh, obviously, he's still a handsome man and he's uh, 
he's a silver fox in Primal Fear. Let me be the first person to use the word silver fox <laughs> on this episode. Um, but there's something sort of rotting about him. Like, you know, like he's he's a corrupt. He's, his character is like a hotshot attorney who loves to take on uh, cases that will get him in the papers. And, you know, he talks a good game about what his his beliefs as a lawyer that everyone deserves a good defense including the guilty and you know that he's the kind of guy who does his job but there's a moment uh, in the middle of the movie where he admits that ultimately he believes that people are good and that you know that's the justification that he gives for the fact that he's defending the indefensible is the idea that you know deep down we're all good people and you know he gets a major comeuppance in the last few minutes of the movie he winds up uh, getting a guilty man off. But what really kills it about him is that he he actually was convinced in taking this case, which he takes pro bono, that the guy is innocent. That's the thing, right? Richard Gere spends his entire career uh, as, what's his name? Marty Vale? Martin Vale. Martin yeah. Vale spends his, his entire career ostensibly getting guilty people off. We see this with Pinheiro, who's played by... Stephen Bauer, mm-hmm. the great... He's such a hunk in this movie. If you if you wanted a good uh, second fiddle in a movie about multiple personality disorder in the '90s, you called Stephen Bauer. Did the same for De Palma and Raising Kane. Yeah. Um, but so you know, Martin Vale spends his entire career getting guilty people off ostensibly. So there's nothing different about this case in the grand scheme of things. What is different is that he does believe in this particular instance that Edward Norton's character is innocent. And I think the reveal midway that Marty gives us that like he believes people are good, but that it's also kind of like a fascination exercise for him because he admits like, I want to understand why good people do bad things Mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like what, what is it about that and like maybe they do deserve to be defended and i i think that's sort of like a feckless ideological conceit for this character because i think ultimately like it's a man who likes to win and like who trusts his instincts and is good at trusting his instincts and is why he's like good at what he does um but his sort of delusion around why he does this i think is really important because it's central to the thing that gets him like totally tricked by Edward Norton's character. And the thing that I want to go back to one thing that you said, Jesse, about this sort of like callousing over the, the kind of like rot of like his, his characters in, in the later parts of his career where like, he's still very handsome, but he's middle-aged. He's 47 here and beautiful, but he tries many, many times to uh, pursue advances with Laura Linney's character, who's another hotshot attorney that they they have a history together. And she not only rebuffs him, but is like deeply cruel to him every single time. And he never gets to the girl. Like there's no sex scene in this movie. There's no like Maura Tierney as his secretary, like flirting with him. Like we kind of see that he like falls flat in that regard, despite the fact that he is incredibly charming and like, you know, he leaves, he leaves you sort of like, whoo, okay. You know, I can think of a couple of other movies where he has more range. One, which we'll talk about 
um, in a few weeks uh, and probably the movie where I see him being the most dynamic out of any performance. But I really like how restrained and kind of like incredibly close to the chest he's playing it in this film because he needs to have the rest of the movie sort of like move around him. He has to be the kind of like center of the film that anchors everything to it. And Edward Norton has to be a character that draws us in. And I don't think we could be drawn in if gear was standing there doing like Tom Cruise in the firm hotshot attorney antics, very different types of hotshot attorneys, right? The Cruise Mm -hmm. version versus the gear version. And I really, really, really appreciated his performance on this watch because it allowed me to like really come into the film and like, sit with Edward Norton's character and fixate on him and like have gear be sort of like the sturdy stabilizer. Mm -hmm. His character is interesting too. It feels like the nineties here is kind of this period in 96 and 97 specifically, we kind of talk about on the show as being this moment of sort of inflection where we shift into a kind of more cynical position. And this movie uh, I won't say mistreats gear, but it certainly does put him through the ringer and ultimately winds up uh, teaching him a very difficult lesson by the end of the movie. But it feels like there's a version of this that swaps those personas where externally he presents as a guy to the media, right? Someone who says, I, th- I think people are good. And I think that, you know, like sometimes good people can do bad things and everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And then when you get him drunk, he says, no, it's actually just about the money. It's just about me. Mm -hmm. Um, They swap that here in order to leave us on a more cynical note by the end of the film. And I just find that fascinating because, you know, you think about some of like the antiheroes of like the aughts and like the 2010s and they do invert that premise that like there is this uh, patina of goodness that ultimately gives way to just actually I'm just sort of a fickle and and rent seeking kind of character. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very smart for this movie to uh, have the what turns out to be an irreconcilable relationship that the gear character has with the fact that he feels that people are good ultimately and that you know, people deserve the best defense possible with the inference being I'm the best defense possible. Right. Like there's a certain <laughs> arrogance to him like that. You know, I, I'm doing this. I'm a hotshot lawyer who makes millions of dollars for on my cases, getting criminals off. So I'm going to do this pro bono defense of this altar boy who everybody thinks is guilty of the murder of an archbishop. There's something about this kid that, uh, you know, that he wants to believe in at, at the beginning of the of the storyline when the young boy Aaron is insisting that he's innocent. Uh, Gear is like, I don't care whether or not you're innocent. I don't have to believe you. I'm your attorney. Like he's doing that kind of tough talk, you know, and in a way you want a tough attorney like that. But Gear's mistake is that he believes in this kid and this kid is a con artist. So the movie uh, gets into sort of its inciting incident by introducing us to that uh, once thought innocent child kid. He's not a child. He's like 19 years old. (laughs) He's 19. An ingenue of sorts. um, Played by Edward Norton as Aaron Stampler. We've already sung his praises a little bit. um, But even, you know, 
having sort of the knowledge of what he's doing here, having knowledge of the twist on this rewatch, I was so taken with every scene that he's in, and especially the early ones when he is doing uh, this this Aaron character. You know, he's kind of stuttering. He's got a very thick, uh, I think they say Kentucky, maybe Arkansas accent. Kentucky. Kentucky. Um, and he's just uh, not, not not even pathetic. He's but he is uh, pitiable in this, and uh, he's doing such a monumental job of fully embodying that character. It always feels convincing, even with uh, the knowledge of his entire career from there. You know, kind of in in my mind as I watch him. At the time that this movie opened, everyone was like, "Wow, nobody's j- shown up on the screen and commanded it since." Dustin Hoffman and the graduate, you know, like, nope. who is this guy? Uh, you know, his audition tape alone got him work. So this was the stuff that he did to try and land this part. Interestingly, there is improv in his performance that actually helps to sell the movie. I read an interview with Norton where he said that the part wasn't even really finished yet when he played it. It was, it was a part, the script was a hot script and the part was a hot part. But they also felt that you need a specific form of actor to do this. And when Norton was cast, that actually led to the finishing of the character. Norton was the one who introduced the stutter to Aaron. That was not wow. in the original screenplay. <laughs> but that was an that was a that was a I think he was stuttering in his audition tape. Most of the audition tapes the producers were sent were the actors, you know, reading their lines to another actor. But Norton's audition tape had him in the corner reading his lines and stuttering and like just disappearing into the part. And everyone was like, wow, what an interesting choice. Like automatically he's set apart from the rest. He's so convincing in his stutter and in his accent, they feel very well trod. Um, He is, I mean, he opens his mouth for the first time, you know, what, 20 minutes into the movie and like, you cannot take your eyes off of him, despite the fact that he's saying like five words. The The line delivery from him as Aaron Stampler is like, ha- it just had me like hanging on every word. Um, I think especially the, the way he decides to play the stutter just felt very organic. It felt very lived in. Um, and even when you know the twist, which... I'll give away here spoilers, uh, which is that Aaron Stampler is a character. This, this guy is playing. Um, and we find out that he has multiple personalities. Surprise. He doesn't, he's just a murderer. Um, and Aaron is his cover. But when you, even though you know that, like watching him play Aaron and know that, the, his character is playing a part and also that Edward Norton is playing this character playing a part like there are so many layers and yet it feels so seamless it's just totally completely seamless and he draws you in in a way that I don't I can't think of many other actors um in any type of movie prestige cable ready or otherwise that do that so efficiently, so quickly in seconds um, mm. upon seeing him. And I'll add one more wrinkle to uh, the layers of this performance is that uh, a significant section of the film is uh, oriented around uh, his interviews with a psychiatrist uh, played by Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. And those scenes are kind of like the audition tapes that got him the part. 
you know, like he's um, he, he switches into the personality uh, for us for a moment during the scene where McDormand is asking him questions. But um, people are gear and McDormand are, are sort of discovering things about him through this videotaping, which is how Norton was found to play the part. And then the fact that like there is that scene later when Richard Gere's character is watching the tape Mm -hmm. and like we see him on a screen, you know, like as as they would watch him if they were if they were casting him. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure he looks just like he did when he sent the tape in. it's just like poorly lit room Mm -hmm. because it's a jail cell or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's cool. It's really cool. The sort of observation of the screen to the camera and the metatextual element and then the meta moment within the film is getting me dangerously close to talking about Brian De Palma on one of our episodes oh my again. God. I yeah, will yeah. abstain. Uh, but will you? Yes, I will. Uh, just make that quick reference and then move on. There's a performative aspect to being on trial, too, and to presenting mm-hmm. your defense. And another key moment in the movie is when he's uh, coaching Aaron on how to behave in the courtroom and he says you know you got to act like you're innocent and the kid says but I am innocent and gear goes that's what I want that face is exactly what I want (laughs) look at that do that face again in the mirror because that's what I want and because uh, all that gears main plan is to churn up enough reasonable doubt to get the guy off which Mm -hmm. was worked for OJ Simpson which was a very fresh <laughs> thing. And I sometimes yes. think that one of the reasons why legal thrillers were so popular in the mid nineties was because of the OJ Simpson trial. Yeah. I and think the, that and the idea right. of uh, guilty people getting away with it because of how they manipulate the court system. And we see it happen in the film, you know, quite often there are sort of these like little kind of references to the way that the, you know, inner workings of the court uh, happen that make it clear that this is, this is theater. Right. This is this is performance and we're performing for a group of 12 and trying to be the most convincing. It even starts with gear sort of talking about uh, with the reporter in the opening scene, you know, that there there isn't really like an objective truth. The truth is what I what I wield and the truth is what I can get you to believe, mm-hmm. you know, like what whatever that thing is that you walk away from and whatever doubts you have or whatever certainties you have. That is the truth. And I've mm-hmm. spun it for you. Yeah. He says it's there. It's my version of it. It's the one I create mm-hmm. in the courtroom. They mm-hmm. don't spend. I don't think they really show the jury hardly at all, which I think is interesting because that's that's typically not a trait of legal thrillers. There's usually a, a fair amount of like cutting to the jury and showing them like, you know, reacting. And there isn't a whole lot of that in this one. They spend a lot of time toggling back and forth between Laura Linney's character and Richard Gere's character. Mm-hmm. I, I really, really like the way that they uh, shoot and sequence the opening argument. Uh, I was just going to bring that up actually. It's very effective. They actually start with voiceover toggling back between the two of them. Uh, Martin Vale's opening statement and what the fuck is her name? Janet Venable is her name. <laughs> Janet Venable's two, opening two statement. Two very screenwritery names, if the I The most screenwritery. So. Yeah. Um, they're toggling back between bits and pieces of their opening statements, and they're actually showing like other things happening. Like they're showing like the the pre-court sort of like hubbub and uh, you know, Richard Gere prepping and like um 
Edward Norton's character like being walked into his cell to change his his uh suit and then they drop us down into the courtroom and and we actually see them delivering the opening statements and it's a very effective way I think of like getting a lot done because you could sit there and have them deliver each of their opening statements which which are material to the the story but I love that they like edited it the way that they did and really tried to like kick the courtroom stuff into moment uh something that had momentum and it does I would guess that they did that though to shorten the running time of the movie. One hundred percent. There seems to be some uh, compression of some of the stuff that's going on in the case because uh, you know one of my complaints about this movie is that there's a little too much plot. Yes. They like there's there's a subplot that's going on in this film about um, one of Gear's other clients, a, a mobster uh, who seems a little confusing because his. Uh, played by Stephen Bauer because he seems like he might be Italian or Spanish, but his taste in music is Portuguese. So I'm yep. not a little, yes. I'm not a little confused. <laughs> it's probably also intentional that this film is set in Chicago, which is, you know, legendary for corruption and graft. And mm-hmm. uh, the sort of subplot that's going on in this film is that the archbishop who was murdered by the altar boy uh, seems to have been mixed up in some land deals. And uh, he's, there's an inference in the movie, especially when Gear's friend Stephen Bauer is found washed up in the river, that uh, washed up in the lake, I guess, is what uh, knew about the Archbishop because there's uh, there's some sex scandal stuff going on in this film too. Part of the defense that they come up with when they're uh, trying to defend Aaron is that it turns out that the Archbishop had been sexually abusing some of the kids, including Aaron that Mm -hmm. uh, his uh, foundation had been looking after. For a while in the movie, they seem to think that they're looking for another person who is involved in this this murder who may have been one of the kids that was in this uh, sex tape that is discovered. But McDormand discovers a little too late to really give Gear the heads up on it is that Aaron is uh, suffering from a disassociative personality disorder and is turning into a second person whose name is Roy, who doesn't stutter, who is also uh, very, very violent and angry and uh, and very capable. Uh, and then they start thinking that maybe this guy is uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. He may have killed the archbishop, but it was Roy who did it. And that sounds like a mm-hmm. weird excuse legally. And it's also too late for Gear to introduce that in this case, because that would mean that they'd have uh, to have a mistrial. Uh, he has to... Uh, go forward. So Gear has this very uh, interesting, it's like a Hail Mary in a way. He provides the incriminating evidence of the archbishop's sex crimes to the prosecutor, basically daring them to use it. And Laura Linney decides to actually do it, even though her boss and all the people in the uh, district attorney's office who have been protecting the archbishop all this time don't want this to be used in the in the case. The, the 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 district attorney wants the death penalty for this kid because of the ties that the archbishop had with the uh, you know the high the high levels of power in Chicago, and it's a very uh, in, I I don't know how you guys felt about this part. Like Lenny obviously wants to get the conviction, but she uses something that actually will now get her fired and get everybody in mm-hmm. a world of shit. <laughs> yeah. 
I agree. It's, I mean, it, I think it comes to down to Gear sort of knowing Laura Linney's character, Venable, as being a, a principled person at her core, and that she uh, sees this substantive evidence and you know wants to bring it in i I don't know it is kind of weird because she's he's banking on her doing something that is like sort of quote unquote like right you know and exposing uh this this person's kind of maliciousness but uh it's also sort of him banking on the fact that she's not as ruthless and cutthroat as he supposedly is well and there's also the tension of like she sees maybe an opportunity to use it as like demonstrating motive, which he has told her she doesn't have for the entire case. Right. Mm-hmm. He's like, you don't have motive. You've got all this other stuff, but you do not have motive. And she's her like, bosses no, tell her that too. I do. I do. But we don't ever hear what her actual argument is. So the fact that he does give her this tape and then she suddenly has motive, right? Like I could see her, using it because it's the one thing she has to say like okay this guy had a reason to kill this person one Mm. of the things that i thought about on this watch that i never considered before is that when aaron stampler is first saying that he's innocent he says there was a third man i saw him i woke up uh after blacking out and i i saw him I, i couldn't really see who it was but i saw this figure And then when we find out that he has multiple personality disorder, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, shouldn't that have been the cue to them that he was lying? Because if the truth was that he had multiple personality disorder, he wouldn't have seen anyone. He just would have said, like, I woke up and I was covered in blood. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, it's a detail that I don't think matters and doesn't like derail the, the story at all. But I caught it this time and was like, oh, yeah, like they should have known that he was lying because that doesn't add up. It's a, it's a distinct writer's contrivance uh, because, you know, the doctors are are all convinced and gears convinced, despite the fact that the consciousness of multiple identities only works one way. Mm-hmm. Roy knows everything about Aaron, uh, but for whatever reason, Aaron has no idea who Roy is. Right. And, and it kind of explained away by him sort of like, seizing control of his consciousness as a protective agent you know but Mm -hmm. uh but but it certainly you know the the mind wanders outside of the parameters of the film when you begin to wonder uh was this performance always on was he always acting like aaron in front of the archbishop in front of the other altar boys at this home how long has he been behaving this way has he always you know all all this kind of stuff um, about like this kind of character he's invented but Mm -hmm. It, for the purposes of the film, it's quite fun. And, you know, we, we've yeah. already talked about... Like, you don't care about any of that. You, you're just like, I'm here for it. You're along for the ride. And it's a film that I think holds you despite its many sort of kind of goofy contrivances from like a writer's standpoint. And it's acted very, very well. I even, you know, when we were talking about Norton, I was I was recalling those final scenes with him and Gear in the cell after they've done a bench trial uh, because Roy has revealed himself and almost strangled Laura Linney to death. And there's something about the way that Norton plays the role there when he's supposed to be Aaron, now somewhat relieved that he uh, is going to a hospital rather than to jail. Or to the gas chamber. Or to the gas chamber, right, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> but there's something about the way he plays it that is nuanced enough that once you know the twist you can see that it is 
sort of one of his characters. It's it's Roy playing Aaron rather than Edward Norton playing Aaron or or Aaron being sort of like the the dominant character at the moment in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and that level, I think, of just like control over that performance, those two distinct agents, and then being able to figure out a way to make one of them performing the other one is something that only really capable actors can do. So how do you know the Archbishop? Uh, I was uh, I was begging on the street up on the Wacker Drive. <clears throat> Bishop, Bishop Rushman came by in his Cadillac. He, he saw me and he stopped. Aaron, did you have any reason to dislike the Archbishop? Dis, dislike? No. No, sir. He was... He was like a father to me. Were you in the room when he was murdered? How can you explain that? There was someone else in that room, Mr. Vale. It was the third person? Yes, sir. Did you tell the police this? Yes. Yes, I did, but but they didn't believe me. All right, well, you tell me now. I, I was I was returning a book to Bishop Rushmore's library. I heard noise, so I, I went back into his in his bedroom. Bishop Bishop Rushman was laying on the floor. There there was blood all over everything, and then I seen a shadow. I seen a a uh, person leaning over Bishop Rushman. It looked up and then it came at me, and that's when when I lost the time. What does that mean? Lost time? I I black I blacked out. It just it, it happens to me sometimes. I just I have spells. I have spells. I lose time. I can't. I can't remember nothing. Now you know, to to pick away a little bit at the the too much plot point that I made is that um, I feel though the ending is a big payoff and works really nicely. I feel like you could have still taken ten or fifteen minutes out of this movie because yeah, bringing um, <laughs> up the whole idea of the the archbishop's sex crimes and the the the. Uh, the association that the John Mahoney character who plays, I guess mm-hmm. the DA um, was, you know, he was really angry that this evidence about the archbishop entered into the actual trial. And uh, he had warned Laura Linney not to do this. And when she does, uh, Laura Linney discovers that basically she's out of a job like this. Once this trial's over, you're out of the DA's office. Uh, so she basically screwed her own career uh, options. But Gear has a scene where he puts Mahoney on the stand for mm-hmm. sort of specious reasons, like, well, you know, the Constitution says that I can do this to defend my client. And, you know, I, it's not legal precedence. It's the Constitution, ma'am. And so Alfred Woodard, the judge, lets him do it. And it's neither here nor there in the in the trial. He just wants to get a vendetta against John Mahoney for what he did to his his client, the mobster, because he's mm-hmm. strongly hinting that the, the mobster was murdered by, uh, you know, the people that lost money on this uh, financial uh, deal in this sort of land that the archbishop wouldn't sell and things like that. And to me, it's like this really doesn't have anything to do with the movie. Um, 
the, no. the judge rightly uh, censures gear for doing it uh, in her chambers and says that none of this will be in the testimony. But for me, it was almost like the, this is all padding. I don't think any of this really changes the narrative very much. Yeah. And it's a thing where, you know, part of it is to get and to expose, I guess, the, the jury to that kind of real estate scheme that's going on behind closed doors with the DA's office and all these right. other investors. This is Chicago. So right. it's a hotbed of corruption. But you could easily integrate that into the central story, I think, and remove the Bauer character in that that sort of subplot uh, altogether, mm-hmm. I feel like. I, I don't know that he's even totally necessary to it, rather than it just being kind of one of those things that transferred over from a much windier kind of novel in the adaptation process. There is, mm-hmm. though, the fact that like he he does want to introduce other potential, like, motives and and people into the mix for reasonable doubt so Mm -hmm. like it's it's padding and it's not necessary but like from a lawyer's standpoint outside of the personal vendetta like he is utilizing Mahoney's character to bring in reasonable doubt I also think it's like interesting to to sort of like think about it as like a a misdirect for the audience because you're watching this film and if you don't know the twist you're like oh maybe like this guy did it because like the archbishop like made him lose money and like you Mm. know there was a third guy so like it could have been this guy and we know that he's kind of ruthless and kind of a piece of shit richard gear has been telling laura linney's character he needs to leave that she needs to leave that office like for the entire movie so there's also like the the sleight of hand for, you know, the audience watching the film. It represents a version of things that feels almost like incidentally progressive where the district attorney's office and these like big shot, you know, power brokers within Chicago are more dangerous than the organized crime bosses are Mm -hmm. in, in the city. It does a little of that kind of all over the place. There are a couple of moments in this film that feel like, incredibly progressive in terms of like the statement they're Mm -hmm. making about like how particularly the way that people's lives who are on trial uh, are impacted by like personal decisions of lawyers and just like the people that Mm -hmm. run like the city and like the the pillars of justice we see from the get-go that like the judge uh is like clearly favoring Laura Linney's character who works for the district attorney's office. And like, Mm -hmm. there are all these moments in this film that, you know, I think because it's Chicago, they can get away with it. But I also think it's an interesting statement to be making in 1996 when, you know, we are ostensibly at one of, I would say peak carceral posture. And there are these moments in this film that are like, very sad because they are revealing the the machinations of a system that is completely uh and utterly able to be manipulated by a few people in this Mm -hmm. city yeah well that's one of the kind of interesting things about the film to me and what's sort of perplexing about it's it's different stances which is that if i find it fascinating you know on paper that uh someone like a richard gear in this movie so close to all of those levers of power and to all of that institutional corruption for his entire career 
is still holding on to that idea that, oh, people are fundamentally good at the end of the day. And sometimes they do bad things. Um, it's the reason he's kind of ultimately punished at the end of the movie. Uh, but I just I find it, uh, you know, again, compelling from sort of the the construction of the film that that is the, the posture that they give him. Well, let's talk about something that bothers me about this movie in terms mm-hmm. of its politics, because I agree with you that to a certain extent there is some uh, signs of progressive politics. But I also think there's a reactionary mean streak to this movie. Absolutely. This is a movie that implicates the Catholic Church in the abuse of children. And the knowledge of this by the state that tolerates and enables it to happen like this archbishop has been protected all this time. Uh, You know, at the very beginning of the movie, we see all the except for the mob. We see all the points of action in that sort of uh, big uh, benefit that gear attends where Mm -hmm. the choir, the boys choir is on stage, including some of the children that the archbishop has molested. We see Edward Norton during the opening credits, even though we don't know him yet. And audiences in 1996 didn't know Edward Norton at all. Uh, But he just so happens to be in the room singing in the choir along with the archbishop and all the heads of the the archdiocese in Chicago and all the government people. And and Martin Vale is a famous person when he walks in the room. So, you know, you get this idea of this sort of overall corruption. But I don't think this movie is ultimately about what happens uh, with the Catholic Church and the abuse of children. If you uh, contrast this movie with something like Spotlight, which is very much about that. This movie is about a mentally ill psychopath who gets away with murder and manipulates the justice system. Yes. And so this movie basically says, this guy played you all like a violin. Uh, You let a murderer out on the street, Mr. Richard Gere. You know, like you got played because you, and you believed him too. He tricked you. And it's, that's where the movie ends on this very dark note about, you know, what do you expect? You know, you think people are good. <laughs> Martin Vale, actually, they're not. And neither are you. And that I think that that's kind of a reactionary way to end the movie. I completely agree. Actually, I, I had a point about this, too, that, you know, for a, a significant portion of the film, it almost seems like they are going to be treating mental illness with uh, some delicacy, right? Like mm-hmm. that it's, you know, Francis McDormand's character even has these, you know, kind of moments where she says, this person doesn't belong in jail or doesn't belong in the gas chamber. This person belongs, you know, like in, in a hospital being, being cared for. This person needs, uh, needs medical help rather than uh, like punitive justice to, to mm-hmm. be in, you know, his, his ultimate end. Mm-hmm. And then at the last second, it does a heel turn and says, no, 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 no these are, are very bad people and uh, they will manipulate you, but mm-hmm. they are ultimately just gaming the system. Yeah. And they're using your bleeding heart to, to get away with murder. They want you to think that they're innocent little lambs, you know, and uh, it's a shocking conclusion and an effective conclusion, but I, I, you know, especially seen later, I kind of resent the, the, the hook that's at the end of this movie, which is that, uh, there that you know if you provide a good defense for a murderer then you're putting a murderer out on the street yeah and that like you know ultimately if we are looking at the landscape of like uh, the american carceral system in 1996 this film reinforces all of the things that they wanted reinforced yep, right absolutely. it's like hard on tough on crime like you aren't there's no sort of like room for excuses you are Mm -hmm. a bad person the second you enter this system um Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter the details of like oh you got multiple personality you don't oh you're a drug addict Eh." no you're going to jail Mm -hmm. and 
so I agree with you, Jesse, completely. There are some sort of progressive like elements of this film, but ultimately it does come down on the side of like reinforcing uh, a very um, punitive posture that, you know, was full throated still is at the time in, in the nineties in, in America. And the other thing that I think is really important for us to remember too, is that like, there's this idea that, you know, the church, I think even, uh, Mahoney's character says this at one time he was like Stampler's on trial, like not the Catholic church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that like the Catholic church, you know, is, uh, is, is powerful and, and may have some like corruptive ties. And we're sort of all like tacitly accepting that to a certain degree. Um, and that like, the real bad guys are not actually the people doing the molesting. The The systemic rot is not the problem. It's these individuals, these mm-hmm. individual actors that need to be punished, despite the fact that we are acknowledging that there is systemic rot. And this predates the revelations coming out of Boston by what, at least three or four years, right? Like six years or so. I think 2003 yeah. was when yeah. those were published in the Globe. Yeah, And then the movie does one other thing that I think is like really egregious to kind of reinforce all of this as well, which is uh, makes Edward Norton's character, Roy, Aaron, whatever we want to call him, uh, also the murderer of Linda, one of the the young women who is in these videotapes that uh, Aaron kind of professes is his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Throughout the film, she's unavailable. Uh, they sort of imply that maybe she skipped town. She ran away. We don't know where she is. Uh, and then at the end, when there's the the sort of heel turn, Norton's character reveals that not only did he kill the archbishop in cold blood, um, you know, and, and he calls it a work of art, I think, but also that he killed this uh, young woman and says something like that, that bitch had it coming or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I think, is sort of the icing on the reactionary cake here where it's like, oh, you see, like, if if they remove that element from it, it's it's too dicey because you know maybe this archbishop did have it coming you know he was doing something bad and and malicious and you know uh committed all these acts of moral turpitude maybe he did get what was coming to maybe everyone here is bad and and you know the only person who's getting off is is edward norton Mm -hmm. but he kills a woman who is otherwise innocent you know and a victim uh and that to me is the part where the movie starts to sort of tell you how you're supposed to feel about this a little bit too much. I And I think that that's gross. And I also think that it's a little bit gross for a movie to invoke such things that are real and systemic sins, like the treatment of children by the Catholic Church, uh, to, to, to bring that up and then have that also be part of the big subterfuge of the mentally ill person who knows exactly what he's doing. That's how Edward Norton gives himself away. Uh, Aaron Stampler on when 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 Martin Vale goes into the jail to tell him that you're gonna you're they're throwing out this case and you're gonna have a separate trial where you're gonna uh, have a much lighter sentence we're gonna use the insanity defense sort of thing and and Aaron who had had, had tried to strangle Laura Linney in the courtroom after Gear worked him up and started uh, basically browbeating him uh, like he goes up to the microphone and covers his hand over the microphone and sort of starts talking to Aaron, like his abusive father, uh, basically prime the pump for 
Aaron to have a meltdown on the stage where on the, in the, um, in the booth where he turns into Roy on the stand and jumps over the <laughs> jumps over the booth and tries to kill uh, Laura Linney's character. And that leads to the, the trial going out the window. Um, pretty good uh, gambit in the courtroom. And when, Gears leaving the prison, um, Aaron says, oh, one more thing. Can you tell the Laura Linney character that uh, I'm really sorry for hurting her in the courtroom? And that's when Martin Vale realizes, oh, wait a minute. He did remember that, which means he's lying to me. And that's the he it's sort of the dead giveaway. I think that it was intentional, though. I think that mm-hmm. he did that to uh, let Martin suddenly realize that he'd been played. Yes, and that's that was going to be my question. I think he did it on purpose. <laughs> I, I would agree I with that. I think so too. Well, He's too smart. We know that Roy, whomever, Edward Norton's character, we know that this guy is incredibly smart and smart enough to like nail all of the elements of multiple personality disorder for a very capable psychiatrist and be able to like switch between these things, you know, seamlessly when he's getting cues from the people who he's trying to trick that they want something from him. Mm-hmm. And so like, I fully believe that that was a decision on that character's part to, to make that slip. He's been so good this entire time. There's no way that he would do something so egregious, like so outlandishly obvious without it being like the last little bit, like fuck you, which again speaks to this reactionary posture of the film, which is like, not only is this guy like, tricking us and like getting off but he's also just like rubbing it in our faces mm-hmm. yeah and he even we know that he has sort of a penchant for kind of leaving uh marks about kind of the the clues to to figure him out a little bit uh it, in the movie it's sort of painted as you know like a, a calling card for the murderous roy character that he carves this a uh, series of letters and numbers into the archbishop that become uh, sort of a almost like Dewey decimal for his personal yeah. library. Sort to of the, find the Riddler would do that, right? Yes. <laughs> to to uh, to find the uh, the Hawthorne book, the Scarlet Letter, and uh, underlined in it is a passage about two facedness. Mm-hmm. That's if I quote it really quickly here. It, it is. No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. And it seems like a, uh, again, another part of his kind of ensemble of moves and, and, you know, organizing the chess pieces in his favor here. I'm going to cue up this kind of idea of two-facedness, of, mm-hmm. of subterfuge, and in my mind, it is about the archbishop, you know, and his presentation publicly versus what he does in private. Mm-hmm. But it will also plant in Vale and in McDormand's character and all these other people the idea that, oh, I too possess two faces. Well, and but, Vale but, does as well, right? Like we know that he presents a certain kind of like tough narcissistic, yeah. tough guy, hot shot. And then, you know, midway through the film, we know he's a big softy, but mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the that theme, I think, runs throughout the entire film with all of its characters. And it makes sense that it would because it's Chicago, to your point, Jesse. Everyone mm-hmm. sort of got that two facedness. Well, here's an example of how smart this movie is. Sometimes you watch a movie like The Sixth Sense. I will admit that when I saw The Sixth Sense, the 
big twist at the end threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. I was did not see it coming. Something was bothering me about the movie the entire time uh, that turned out to be the overall misdirection. I credit it to be uh, bad filmmaking. <laughs> like I was like, this guy, <laughs> he's almost got it here sort of thing. Like there's some there's some stuff. There are some scenes in the movie that don't quite make sense, but it sure does pay off at the end to the point that I was like, OK, I got to see this movie again to figure out where how they tricked me and when i was watching the movie i that's when i realized that it's the misdirection and stuff and then there were scenes like the kid looking right at bruce willis's eyes and saying i see dead people and then they cut to bruce willis's face you know that's so (laughs) incredibly obvious why didn't i figure it out uh what's wrong with me was sort of how i felt like well done mr filmmaker you tricked me and i thought that you couldn't trick me watching a movie The, the end of primal fear it was also a big surprise and it was fun to watch it again uh, expecting to see, oh, here are all the hints and the clues and all this stuff. But that's how airtight Roy slash Aaron's plan is, is that there really isn't a lot of evidence and a lot of hints. Uh, they did a very nice job uh, making sure that this con artist concentrates the con so that nobody knows it until it's okay to announce it in true supervillain fashion once nobody can do anything about it. There's also some hints that, you know, while... Roy's plan is airtight. There are a couple of key moments that uh, are sort of incidental manipulations that he gets to kind of provoke. I think specifically about the one, once you know the twist, uh, when the camera starts beeping because the battery is low in those sessions with Francis McDormand's character. And it's at that moment, you know, the, the film kind of tricks us into thinking, oh, this is trauma being kicked up from you know the the videotape sessions with the archbishop watching it again having the ending in mind you kind of get the sense that he found it the most opportune moment to reveal because he could uh convince mcdormand's character however tacitly that it was you know a, a trauma response rather than him simply revealing what he needed to in small measures just to get the diagnosis that he needed and not very much of it on tape either like, uh, like basically the tape cuts out at the point that he uh, gives a little glimpse of Roy, just enough to freak out McDormand, but not enough to be used in the trial. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another little uh, thing that I noticed at the very beginning of the movie, uh, when Gear is flirting with Laura Linney at the bar. Can we just say, I'm not a huge fan of Laura Linney, but she's we are very- We had the same conversation. She's she's a fine actress. I'm not saying she's a bad actress, but I was like, Laura Linney, she's so good in Primal Fear. Like this was sort of at the beginning of her acting career. She's uh, smoking a lot in the film. She she plays a pretty good uh, uh, prosecutor in the film and she's quite good in it. And I sort of feel bad for sort of underrating her. And I was, sometimes it takes a performance for me to start realizing, Hey, that's a pretty good actor. Um, and I like Laura Linney, but I didn't understand why she was getting so many big parts in the nineties because there wasn't anything that remarkable to me about the performance, but she's very well done. She's very well used in this film. And, uh, I think that they have lots of good scenes together, uh, with her and, and gear. And, uh, she smokes a lot and, I, you know, I know smoking is bad, but I think that bring back smoking in movies. It was yeah. sort of how I felt while I was watching this movie. Like th- you really did see a lot of uh, smoking. Now, I think that they've moved all smoking scenes to be cell phones now in movies. Like now people just get out their phones <laughs> instead of light a cigarette. Instead of taking yeah. a drag of a cigarette. But it's You're funny right. how casual. I mean, this is just to cement the fact that this is adult entertainment as you've got smoking yeah. characters. 
Yes. And she's smoking like in public buildings too. Yeah. Place, places like... where she's explicitly told not to smoke. Yeah. And she's got like the like long, she like like the slim, she's got the, like the really long cigarettes. So like yep. when they're in her fingers, they're like as long as her face is. And it's, it's very sexy. It's like you forget because you don't see it anymore, but you're like tobacco use in movies is very sexy. Well, that's what's, that's what's so bad about uh, to, tobacco use in movies. But you know, when you, when you've got a, a vaguely lurid thriller, uh, it helps if somebody's smoking a cigarette to me. If someone wasn't smoking in this movie, it would feel not quite right. So to get back on track though. So at the beginning of the movie, gear is flirting with Laura Linney at the bar and he gets behind her and he says, you want to dance? And she says, there isn't any music. And he says, sure there is. Like he's being sort of very flirty mm-hmm. with him. Uh, and it's notable that at the very end of the movie, when Norton has revealed his master plan and is rejoicing at getting away with it, he says to Marty, it was like we were dancing, you and I, but there isn't any music, you know? Yep. <laughs> I love that. But Gear winds up being uh, his dance partner in this terrible miscarriage of justice. Yes. Yes, and he did turn around for Edward Norton's character. He did, yes. indeed. He <laughs> was Laura ready Lynn, to. he did not. Do you trust me? Do. Yeah, yes. Yes, of course I do. Good. Because I don't trust you. I'm losing this case. You know why I'm losing this case? Because my fucking client is fucking lying to me. I never, 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 never lied to you. Bullshit! That is bullshit. I told I don't fucking believe you. I told you. I saw the tape. I saw the tape. I know what he did to you. Oh, now, no. I want to hear it from you. No. No. Tell me, no. Tell me the whole thing. Don't fucking do this. I want you to tell me the truth and do not even think about it. You fucking killed him, didn't you? You did it. You no. killed him. You're so full of shit. You did it, didn't you? Tell me the truth. Don't lie to me. You little fuck. You did it. You killed him. You son of a bitch. You fucking killed him. No. What the hell you want from me now? Quit your crying. I can't understand a goddamn word you're saying. You little sissy, you make me sick. Well, looky here. Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? Hey, this is my cell, Jack. Who the fuck are you? You was lawyer, ain't you? Yeah. Yeah, with your fancy suit, I heard about you. Well, my, my. You sure fucked this one up, counselor. It sounds to me like they're gonna shoot old Aaron so full of poison it's gonna come out his eyes. Where is Aaron? Aaron's crying off in some corner somewhere. You scared him off. You gotta deal with me now, boy. I'll give you a beating on principle. Look at me. You ever come in here with pulling that tough guy shit on Aaron again, I will kick your fucking ass to Sunday. Do you understand me? I understand you. I understand. Aaron gets in trouble, he calls you. You're the man. I'm really glad that you brought up not liking her because when we were watching this, I stopped. <laughs> we stopped the movie at one point and I was just like, babe, I don't fucking like Laura Linney. Like, I just don't like her. I never have. And I was like, I don't know what it is. Like, I I can't explain to you what it is about her that I don't like, but I've never liked her. In this film, though, I remarked to Aaron that, like, it's the prettiest I've ever found her. She's, She's quite beautiful. Her hair is sort of, like, soft and golden. She has, like, Barbara Walters haircut. It's really pretty. Um, she's got these big blue eyes and she's, you know, she's quite sexy. Um, and she's ruthless. She's just mean. Mm-hmm. Like every word out of her mouth to Richard Gere's character is venom. Like mm-hmm. she's just like, 
tearing him down she's like no don't you like the ones that don't have a brain oh you don't you like to not look at them when you fuck them like she's just saying all this terrible shit yeah um but i do like her in this film but i i had to stop and be like why do i fucking hate her like what (laughs) she's no she's no maura tierney i'll say that much has a very small role the stacked cast we should take a moment to to commend the the incredible lineup of uh the the huge deep bench of this movie. So many Absolutely. great uh, actors are in it, and for considering this is an acting showcase, basically for Edward Norton, it has to be said that some of my guys are in this film, like Maura oh, Tierney yeah. and Andre Brower and yes. John Mahoney and Alfred Terry O'Quinn, Terry O'Quinn, the God, uh, you know, with a mustache this time. Yeah, a, a very mustachey mustache. I have our, a brief our boy Stephen Bauer. Uh, we love Stephen Bauer. Love him. Brief digression here. Alfre Woodard, I think, just one of those unheralded greats of the yeah, screen. She's too. always terrific and reliable. I had in my mind this presumption that she was maybe in her 50s as of today, because you know I remember her in a lot of 90s films. She looks quite young. Uh, and then I put on Alan Rudolph's Remember My Name the other day from mm. 1978. And she is in that film, already a grown adult woman, looking exactly the same as she does in Primal Fear. And I had to get out my phone and realize that Alfre Woodard is in her early 70s and uh, still looks incredible, um, has not aged a day in like 40 yeah. years. Um, and she's a terrific actress as well. Yeah. The judge was supposed to be a white male, and they just quietly changed it to be a black woman. Andre Bauer, by the way, is incredible. He has like two lines in this movie, but he's like (laughs) really stellar. It's funny. He's like the comedic uh, relief in the film. He's seemingly so random for him. Well, I mean, he's great in Brooklyn Nine-Nine exploiting that same kind of goofiness. He is, but that's not the type of character he played until that show. For sure. And I just mean, you know, that like it it almost feels like sometimes he's playing in a very different movie tonally than uh, everyone else is. And especially when he takes the witness stand, uh, it's significantly goofier than the movie allows itself to be for a long portion of it. Mm -hmm. His character is... um is gears uh, hatchet man or something like he's the guy he, he sends him off to go and do things for him. And, uh, Brower gets the task of, uh, delivering the incriminating videotape that's been stolen from the archbishop's place, uh, to make sure that it gets to the prosecutor. Uh, I, I did laugh at the scene where Laura Linney gets really mad that this tape got delivered to her, <laughs> basically daring her to use it. And she says, meet me at O'Donnell's or McGarnagle's or whatever their local Irish <laughs> bar uh, when from when they used to be an item a long time ago. And she walks in and she bartender says, what will you have? And she says, the usual, Tom. And then the waitress arrives with a Bud Light. It's like, who are <laughs> <laughs> the usual you're expecting usual. like a whiskey or something but it's right, a like a whiskey bud sour it's literally a bud light well and you know laura linney in this movie too on at least two occasions either throws out a cigarette or ashes into a totally full glass of liquor yeah and i'm like what do you do leave it alone find an empty vessel or put it out on the floor it's fine she's distraught you know? she's distraught she is yeah. well that's a funny scene where where after everything's gone to shit in the courtroom uh they wind up in the judge's chambers and uh she's trying 
trying to light a cigarette and Woodard's like, no smoking in my chambers. And then they cut to her pouring a big, big brandy glasses for everybody. <laughs> she pours a double for herself because yeah. Richard Gere refuses the glass. And you're like, all right. Good for it's you. funny, too, because she when she's on the bench, she seems to have a big glass of iced tea going. But maybe it was actually brandy and ice. Who knows? It's totally liquor. It's Alfre's uh, funky juice is what we call it mm-hmm. the, that the judge has on the stand. <laughs> Uh, but they, they give it, there's a lot of those kind of like beats and, and ripples in here that are fun watching now, kind of in retrospect and hindsight, uh, just knowing, you know, this kind of uh, the multitude of middle brow, I'll call mm-hmm. it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a distinct scene where uh, Alfred Woodard is pulling uh, gear into her quarters to kind of like tell him like, you know, I'm going to hold you in contempt and I'm going to fine you for what you just did to... Uh, to John Mahoney's character out on the stand and making a mockery of my court. And she says the line, something like, uh, care, watch your next step. You're treading on dangerous ground here. Or say like that, that yeah. line that, uh, a judge will always counselor. Say. I'm warning you counselor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there are a lot of those in here that are just kind of like, you know, yes, cliches at this point, but watching them now kind of in the context of what kind of movie this is and what to expect. They're, they're fun when they pop up. It's almost like a callback to a, a, a simpler time of movie making. Well, you know, return spelled R E T V R N to yeah. uh, the days where a movie like primal fear could be the number one movie at the box office for three weeks. Yeah. Three, three weeks, yeah. three whole fucking weeks. <laughs> yeah. It was, I think, something like a $30 million budget ended up clearing $100 million, 110 mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a massive hit at the yeah. time on, on that kind of budget. Uh, I also noted that there was uh, a moment there in time where for a couple of weeks at the multiplex, you could order your fear straight up or as primal, kind That's of right. like an in and out order. Because there was another Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon film just called fear released in april of that year you should do it for your show have you guys seen fear i have never seen fear actually but it rocks you have to see it It, (laughs) and and there's some horny jail stuff in it carly great i think you'll like it i'm so here for the horny jail stuff (laughs) for william peterson i'm no for uh for reese and marky mark there's a there's a scene where on where they're on a roller coaster Uh, that's all i'm gonna tell you Okay. You will, go to, you will be sent to horny jail. It it just made headlines uh, about a day ago. Actually, <laughs> Reese Witherspoon is doing some some press tours for whatever reason right now. Maybe a new season of the morning show or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's mentioning that uh, she was not very pleased with the execution of that particular roller coaster scene and the way that it was uh, absolutely way that it was introduced to her sort of last yeah. minute on the set. Um, but uh, I'm sure it, you know in the context of the film works just fine but but of course there's always that kind of you not know. surprised not surprised because yeah. the movie is so sleazy and it has marky mark in it it's pretty surprising that i haven't been thrown in horny jail yet in a movie with richard gear and i it. was very surprised about this we can talk just about richard gear's looks in this can for I a just, moment please yes. if you'll permit me <laughs> i've been in love with this man since i was Maybe too young, <laughs> because <laughs> I we had a copy of of pretty of the VHS tape of Pretty Woman. My mom kept it in a box along with Fargo, where she was like, "Look, you can't watch this stuff yet." And I was like, "All right." And then one day she was like, "Okay, you can watch this." And I watched Pretty Woman and uh, was like, 
uh, okay, I love you. Um, I love uh, Julie Roberts, but I absolutely fell head over heels in love with Richard Gere. And I just like, I marvel at him. He's, as I said, he's 47 in this film. He looks fucking incredible. Mm -hmm. And I said this earlier online, but truly I cannot think of an actor that wears like 80s and 90s, like traditional menswear as as well mm. as Richard Gere. I'm thinking of him in American Gigolo. He's in those pea coats. Like, oh my God. And in this movie, he's like fully like wool coat, trench coat, tie, suit, black suit. Okay, we're doing the tan like button down. Like it's all like perfect neutral suiting. And he looks incredible in it with his salt and pepper hair. And then, then he puts his fucking glasses on and I lose my goddamn mind. Let me tell you, there's a close up of him in, in the jail cell. He's in olive green with like a trench coat and a tie and a suit. And he's just like tonal, like sand desert colors. And he leans forward and he has his glasses on and he says something to Edward Norton's character. And I like, was just like, freeze frame like what the fuck are you doing to me right now he's so hot in this movie (laughs) it's funny some of the lengths that they go to in the film uh just to make him even more beautiful kind of like by proxy and and around the other actors uh the way when he goes to dinner with john mahoney's character who is not you know like at in his prime as like you know young hot man or anything and he's not a silver fox he's Fraser's dad but the entire time he's like crunching on like a crispy piece of something while they're like eating sushi and it's like Mm -hmm. you're at a japanese restaurant why are you crunching so loud he never Uh, eats he never drinks yes he never he doesn't do any of that in the movie well and then there's another scene on the witness stand with the uh lead detective on the case when he's handed hawthorne's book and we've seen what richard Gere looks like in a set of glasses and the detective pulls out his reading glasses and they're a very thin very effeminate bright red framed reading glass that just is very distinct and i noticed it uh this time around just comparing that to those kind of heavier bulkier frames that that gear gets and just looks really good in gear um super handsome all his life i think like what what i think he's still a handsome man yeah he is and a few years later he played um Billy Flynn in Chicago, another uh, mm-hmm. sleazy Chicago lawyer who uh, doesn't exactly play by the rules and manipulates public opinion and loves the spotlight. He's great in Chicago. And, uh, like, if you were going to give him an Oscar voice. nomination for his uh, career, which he never has had one, it should have been for that. It's funny that he was ignored that year when Chicago won so many. Chicago won like eight Oscars or something that yeah. year, and he wasn't even nominated for it. He should have been. Right. And he won the Golden Globe that year, if I'm not mistaken, for musical comedy. So, you know, he was in the running. He was certainly in the awards conversation, but then overlooked. But uh, he's a joy in that film and totally surprised me with his singing talent and his dancing talent. I was I was taken away, blown Mm -hmm. away by that. Uh, Chicago shot in Toronto. What? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Really? They love Toronto. We yeah, love we, Toronto. we uh we the whole Chicago was made here. I know a few people who worked on it and they oh my God. they used to joke while they were working on it that it was called Toronto. 
<laughs> was was Primal Fear shot in Toronto? No, as Primal Chicago? Fear was shot in Chicago. Okay, I mean it's very it's got the Sears Tower and some of the that's landmarks. That's true, and in it, it has sure. the it, there's you see the L several times. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You gotta think about like all these courtroom dramas that were both on television and in films, and like there's a lot of ways to do that, right? And I think some films do it well, and others don't. I just I I found myself appreciating on this watch the the sort of structures of the film that they use to keep the momentum going and to to really sort of pull you in the entire way so that when the rug is pulled out from underneath you it really is pulled out from underneath you you've been fully engrossed mm-hmm. yeah and and again this is a movie that uh, has everything riding on the big twist at the end paying off. Mm-hmm. Like if it hadn't worked, then uh, you might think the whole movie was mid when it works though. It sort of ups the estimation of the film. It's like, that was a pretty solid film, very watchable with a great ending as opposed mm-hmm. to, eh, it was kind of a mid movie that uh, didn't really pay off. It it very much pays off. And I think that uh, it brought instant attention to Edward Norton. I mean, I mean he had to, uh, yeah, I feel that he, he uh, as an actor, he's a very good actor, but he also has a reputation as being a meddler and uh, yes. a guy yeah. who sort of has throws his weight around uh, even at the in the beginning of his career. Like he helped come up with the character. It was mm-hmm. it was like three quarters written when he got the part and he filled in the blanks. He gave Aaron a stutter. He improvised that scene where Roy suddenly grabs Richard Gere and throws him up against the wall. That was improvised. Oh, wow. Gear went with it. If you watch that scene again, you'll notice Gear seems a bit surprised by what happens in that moment, but it mm. was spontaneous. Yeah. But it's these funny, are all things know, that the director would be like, oh, God, you know, I'm losing control. My 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 ingenue is now taking over the movie, but it was all for the best. <laughs> it really was. It ends up working. I mean, it's, it's funny now that we can almost kind of see it as a blessing, but the fact that he was almost sort of you know, quietly fired from uh, being one of Marvel's main guys after appearing as the Hulk in 2008 uh, and then getting replaced by Mark Ruffalo, who's now, mm-hmm. you know, uh, chained to that sinking ship for the rest of eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he's he's had a, a bit of a resurgence lately. I think he was just in the, the Knives Out sequel as mm-hmm. sort of the kind of uh, villain of that. Yeah, and and he, he appeared in Birdman. He got an Oscar nomination again. He's fantastic in American History X, even though it sounds like he was a complete nightmare to work with, but then again, yeah. so was the director. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, he's an actor who wants some c- creative control over his work, and uh, I, this is a movie that pretty much contains his entire range, too. Like, mm-hmm. he plays the sort of fast-talking asshole <laughs> at the end of primal fear and the 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 naive uh victim the little boy lost kind of uh persona which turns out to be an act uh, mm-hmm. but you know that's what actors do i mean that was uh what marlon brando said that actors are liars for a living mm-hmm. yeah and uh so this movie works too because it's the introduction of a brand new important american actor and it's a movie about uh performativeness and manipulation, which is also what actors do.
And I think, you know, where I want to kind of end on our conversation today is maybe looking at the now and how much it contrasts with the kind of film environment that uh, gave us something like Primal Fear. That was giving us something like Primal Fear quite often. Um, mm-hmm. Hoblet, the the director of this, you know, really kind of stopped making movies after 2007, 2008. Uh, he had Fracture, and then he had one more movie with Diane Lane, um, the, the name of which escapes me at the moment. Uh, but since then, in the last 15 plus years, he has only really directed a one-off episode of television here and there. He did an episode of uh, The Americans, the mm-hmm. Kerry Russell and uh, Matthew Rich show that people really love. Uh, the Strain, a Guillermo del Toro uh, kind of co-production there. Uh, but he doesn't really work at this level anymore. Um, and part of it, I imagine, is you know that he's getting up there in age. But another part of it, I think, is that we don't really have a film environment anymore that gives us solid, adult-oriented, mid-budget thrillers very often. They are, mm-hmm. not, uh, they are not the norm anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you wouldn't get a, you probably wouldn't get a feature uh, like Primal Fear on, on streaming or on HBO. It would be a six-hour miniseries now. Yes. Yep. There would be mm-hmm. uh, two hours of plot and four hours of bullshit <laughs> to, right. to pad it out to get to the six hours. Uh, you know, it, but if you want to watch uh, an adult uh, legal drama, you have to watch, uh, I guess, Perry Mason, which of course gets canceled, even though everybody likes it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, but the the days of going to see a, a movie for grownups with people smoking in it and uh, big t- legal thrillers uh, are behind us, and I mm-hmm. wish they would come back. And that's why I thank God for Clint Eastwood, who's making his final film right now called Juror Number Two. Yes, so, sir. You know, I'm I am in full support of SAG and AFTA and the Writers Guild, but I think that maybe they can give Clint a pass because <laughs> if one director is allowed to keep working, even though there's a strike on, it's Clint. Because come on, man, the and guy's he 93. Quickly. He's he's labor friendly too. <laughs> he he works quickly. He gets the shit done. He's in and out. They're he's, they're all wrapped by six o'clock because he wants to go home and have dinner. Yes. And, and you know, this is a feature film that Clint Eastwood's directing, so it'll probably be done by next week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I, let I think the I man made that cook. <laughs> I think I made that joke when it was announced. You know, it's like Clint, Clint preparing his final film, Juror Number 2, and I said, in six weeks, we're going to get uh, yeah. Clint finishes, ha- wraps production on Juror Number 2. Jesse, yeah. I want to like, thank you for uh, making making our streak of episodes where brian de palma and, and clint, clint eastwood are mentioned uh yeah. unbreakable yeah. so far yeah. we got to keep it going <laughs> well it's like um, the you know aaron and i talking for an hour the it means the approximation is getting closer and closer that we will 100%. mention either either brian de palma or clint eastwood and or yes. both yeah, it's true. Yes. It's like monkeys on a typewriter, but if you put Jesse and I in a room long enough, actually, prob- probably within, you, know, you don't even have to wait until infinity. It's, it's no, 10, we're, 15 minutes. We were just getting to the minutes. end of the recording, and I'm like, and Clint Eastwood's making a legal and, thriller. Can't forget Clint mention. Eastwood. But, you know, he's holding up a tradition, is what I'm saying. Like, he is. so, yeah. you know, let, let Clint help us with our definite. Um, we're suffering. We don't have enough legal thrillers that we can go watch in a movie theater. Clint's doing everything yep. he can. And, and he's, he's done a couple. This of is them his before. last movie, so let the man cook. 
Let him cook. Uh, I will say, you know, for for whatever grievances you may have about memory, I really liked that film. Me too. And Liam Neeson is like one of the only other actors that's still getting like movies that are just for adults. Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. his stuff with Yami Kalitsara and like uh, other sort of adjacent like Taken type films. Well, and the great Martin Campbell who did memory. And Martin Campbell who did memory. Like uh, he's one of the only other actors where I'm like, Whatever he's doing, I'm going to watch it because it's for adults. It's for me. And like, it will be interesting, even if it's if it if that's the only reason it's interesting. Well, I I did a show with David Roth on Martin Campbell for my Mm -hmm. show and we watched Memory together. And at the screening that I went to, which was like quarter full, uh, when Martin Campbell's name came up at the end, when the movie was over, everyone clapped. And to me, that's a sign of the the journeyman director who knows what he's doing, that he can deliver a mid-movie where, uh, truth be told, I bumped it up an extra star for the last 10 or 15 minutes. Very yes. well done. Yes, <laughs> the I big, agree. The big uh, reveal at the end was good and uh, was very, very funny that they did it. And when the credits rolled, Martin Campbell got applause. And I've walked out of like, you know, I saw How to Blow Up a Pipeline, excellent movie, but we all left when it was over. But when memory ended, we all went, woo, because Martin Campbell did it again. <laughs> he did it. He's reliable. And I think, you know, like the, the journeyman behind the camera, we don't see enough of it. They don't get enough love anymore. The other thing that I was noticing that was just sort of at the forefront of my mind as we were watching this, we kind of already remarked upon a little bit, but just... Uh, the number of like background actors and extras that make all of the the set pieces and make everything about this movie feel so alive. Mm-hmm. And I was catching their faces and seeing the little work they were doing right now and thinking about, you know, this this sag after strike right now in uh, coordination with with the WGA and just kind of thinking about how dire the the future of filmmaking feels right now with all the conversations we're hearing about. AI and and you know mm-hmm. full scans of background actors basically just being thrown in as as if they're just you know special effects pieces or something like that and the the tactility and the realness and and just this population of you know working people who get paid to be there and to provide that sort of life to a screen mm-hmm. uh, just felt I don't know it, it felt very far away but also very rewarding seeing it in a in a movie like this. Yeah, we're we're at this point now where, uh, you know, the balance is about to be tipped in the wrong direction, like they're they're going to make themselves. Uh, it's a world of hell if you're uh, even saying that maybe we could save money by having uh, filming some actors and then compositing them into crowd scenes and treating human beings the way that you would, you know, like you'll watch movies to this day where somebody will open the door and you'll hear a door sound effect that you've heard for the last 50 years because it's in the sound effects library to treat human beings like that is disgusting to me like that mm-hmm. you want extras and 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 by the way people who uh, perform as extras in movies take the craft very seriously there are people who are always in toronto they're always jobbing they're always like oh i've got a part in this movie and 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 that part might be i'm at table number 12 in a scene in uh, you know chicago filmed in toronto or but but they're they're all in and and they earn their money and and people can tell what's real and not, what's not real like imagine a nightmare world in 15 years where you see the same faces all the time in every crowd scene like like that's, you know, there's more to life than this. And, th- and we go to movies to escape. We don't go to movies to see 
the the same background people in the same movie like that is a mm-hmm. nightmare world it's like you don't want movies to start looking like cutscenes in video games it's one thing for like um ridley scott in gladiator to have computer generated extras in the coliseum and stuff but you know right uh, we're not seeing human beings being turned into disposable uh you know things in a in a in the background of a shot like humans can tell that kind of stuff and it's so yeah. insulting for the industry to think that we would accept that it's insulting but it is the next logical step in this march toward you know mm-hmm. the ultimate implosion of capitalism and it will come yeah uh whether or not we'll be alive for it i don't know but the thing that i keep telling myself about about these conversations, not just with regards to film and media, but, you know, AI sort of in all these other industries is that like, there will be a, a lurch forward, um, by the powers that be with this technology. And then there will be a, an inevitable failing and an, an inevitable crumble of, of that technology because, it can't sustain itself. And particularly when it comes to art, like it won't be tolerated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also just like doesn't work as a business model ultimately. And I think that like, you know, it's, I'm not saying like, Oh, I'm not worried about it. Cause like it's going to fail. But I do think there has to be some faith in humanity <laughs> that like, that like we will will out what, what the sort of like, you know, four people that run everything are deciding right now, um, mm-hmm. that that won't last. It cannot sustain itself. It, it just literally can't. And we are at the boiling point, which also feels like a sort of whimper into the night of the late stages of capitalism, where things are ratcheting up at an extreme measure and it was predicted by the Mm -hmm. man who wrote the book on this like this is where we are Mm -hmm. i feel that if you're going to impose artificial intelligence on any level of the of the film industry you should be doing it at the executive level and not not the writers and not the performers you can get an algorithm to to tell you what kind of movies to make as opposed Mm -hmm. to human beings saying get the robots to make the movies right and you'd save billions (laughs) of fucking dollars wouldn't you that's right well, I mean, it's it, it feels like an uncertain kind of scary time, but I, I have been, I don't know, finding it very fulfilling just to see the, the level of solidarity online with people who are not part of these unions, but are, you know, our friends and, and mutuals on Twitter who uh, who do work in the industry and, and sharing videos and sharing their support. Yep. Thank you, Ron Perlman, for suggesting that we should burn down Bob Iger's Fuck house. Yes. God. Um, Really, really cool fucking video. I would yeah. not want to have Ron Perlman mad at me. But, you know, I, these actors at, you know, like massive levels of success, uh, just speaking out in solidarity and support for, you know, the quarter of a million people who are part of this union well, um, and I, has been really rewarding. And I'm hoping that there's going to be some radicalization going on here. Like, yes, like, like when I saw Ron Perlman delivering this fantastic monologue about, you know, how, like, listen to me, motherfucker. <laughs> You want you a lot know, of ways to lose. There's your a house. lot of ways to lose your house, motherfucker. <laughs> sort of thing. It's like, and people were like, "How could he say that? That's a threat." And it's like that is a response to another threat, because mm-hmm. threatening to put people out of their homes is fucking is violent. violence. And it's so, violence. Ron Perlman, who is an actor by the way and knows how to sell a line, 
sold some lines and and you know the, i think that uh, the fact that so many people are like fuck yeah when they hear talk like that that's because that's a negotiating tactic do you think that jimmy hoffa uh, raised the uh, the american wages because he was a nice guy no because he threatened the shit out of a management mm-hmm. yep i do really hope that there is some radicalization it's it's thrilling to see so many people striking you know you ups is is on the verge of striking right now you've got mm-hmm. teamsters out mm-hmm. there um in in starbucks. picket lines starbucks yeah. like it it is thrilling as as someone on the left to see to see another ground swell and i hope that it taking place in such a highly visible industry like the entertainment industry um, that it does radicalize some people because there's, you know, this conversation of like, well, it's millionaires striking for, for more money. And I've seen so many actors come out and say like, I drive a fucking Honda civic and I make like $20,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not about me being a millionaire. This is about like fair wages and compensation the same way that like you want that. Well, and most actors are not. Yeah. Yes. Honoring contracts. And 90 percent of 90 percent of the acting workforce is unemployed at all times. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And they're not your Matt Damon's. They're or not your, your Kenneth Matt Branagh's Damon's. Or, yeah. you know, that is a people. small percentage of yeah. of the larger population of actors and people that just like work in movies. Yeah. But Perlman didn't start it. Perlman is just answering the violence that is being suggested by management. Yeah. He's basically saying, oh, yeah. But he's saying it in a, in a very dramatic way because he's an actor for fuck's sake. He's an actor yeah. and he's got a face that's terrifying. <laughs> and he, God damn it, he sells it. He does. Yeah. Uh, so I have a feeling that the potential for radicalization by the actors suddenly performing amazing soliloquies about the, the rights of, of workers is probably going to lead to a quicker resolution of the strike than for the writers or for any other uh, guilds, which is unfortunate. But, you know, they can't allow Ron Perlman to keep doing incredible uh, threats in, on TikTok videos. <laughs> it's going to lead to the destabilization of the entire economy. It is yes. true. They're trembling in their boots right now. I they sure should hope be. So. Yeah. Well, I hope that, you know, the this does offer an opportunity for radicalization to to the audiences around the world who are, you know, keeping an eye on this and and tracking the movements of these unions. Um but I'm sure we can talk more about that on a, another day. We could go on for several hours about that on this podcast. Um, it's a good place to end, though. It, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think with that, we will uh, come to the end of our conversation about Primal Fear and lots of other things with our fabulous uh, guest, Jesse Hawken. Jesse, we love you. Uh, your podcast, Junk Filter, is one of our very favorites in our household. One of my absolute favorites. In a, in a just world, it would be the number one culture podcast <laughs> in the world instead of just the number two uh, culture podcast in the world. <laughs> I do it for um, love, not money. <laughs> that's right. I feel uh, it. I feel it in the episode. But but we're huge fans. Listen to Junk Filter, uh, audience, if you're not already. I can't imagine that you listen to our show and don't already know about uh, Jesse's. Um, it, it's wonderful, and, and we love it. We love getting a chance to come on. For those handful of folks out there who don't already know of you and your podcast, where can you be found uh, around the world and the internet? Uh, the podcast is Junk Filter, and the uh, Twitter account for that is Junk Filter Pod. Available wherever you get your podcasts, and I also have a Patreon, uh, and patrons get additional episodes every month. That's Patreon.com/JunkFilter. Five dollars a month uh, gets you even more amazing content and the entire back catalog 
Uh, actually, the first dozen or so episodes aren't on there yet, but uh, I'll take care of that soon. Uh, myself, I'm uh, I'm known as Jesse Hawken on Twitter. You can also find me by that name on Instagram, in Letterboxd, and on the brand new Blue Sky. Are you threading yet? Are you threads yet, I, I am not. I, I'm not. I'm not convinced that threads is good yet. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's a bunch of brands Brand like City. being like you up. I've like, seen a lot of uh, normies posting on there, and I haven't seen hilarious. Once I start seeing hilarious screen caps from people who are really funny on on threads, maybe I'll join it. But for me, the most important thing about a social media platform is that funny and smart people are there. And no, right now, no there's still enough of them on Twitter. There are a lot of them on Blue Sky, and I know that there are some on threads, but I also see too much normie behavior on there. No, there are no funny people. <laughs> the only person I care about on threads right now is Zach Fox, and he deletes every single one of his threads after he posts it. <laughs> He's just like, all right, I'm done. I, I said this thing about, you know, cornrows in my balls, so I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> From our end of things, you can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can follow both of us on Blue Sky as well at the moment. Uh, Carly uh, has retained her deep impact crier handle. I am Notorious Lightning there. The show will have its presence there at some point. Again, I think when we get a few more smart, funny people there and, and a slightly bigger audience, we will definitely have the podcast uh, a page and a timeline of its own. Uh, you can follow along with us uh, on Patreon as well, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bi-weekly bonus content. We're going to give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray. Thank you for your support. And we will catch you all the next time. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>